Hallelujah. God is good. And he's good all the time. Amen. He is good all the time. Thank you, Jesus. Such a wonderful and rich presence of the Lord in the house tonight. I pray that you can tap into what he is doing and what's going on. Um, and I know that the young people and the kids are going to do that as they go to their classes. We're going to dismiss you right now. Um, just remember that it's me preaching and not Brother Mike today. So if you get in two lessons, that's probably a good thing. No. All the adults are scared now. I only have six pages of notes. We'll be absolutely fine. God is good. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. It has been a while since I've been able to be with you in this capacity, so thank you for the privilege of uh, ministering tonight, and um, we're going to continue to pray for our pastor. I always miss Brother George when he's not able to be here. Glad that Sister Dory is still hanging out with us. Amen. Pray for her for rest and refreshing during this time. Amen. Romans chapter 8. We quote a lot of different verses from this passage. Um, but I want to take us to the very end of the chapter. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now, Paul's writing this to a church that potentially are experiencing some or all of those things. So for us, this is kind of a figurative question, right? Most of us are not dealing with sword or famine or persecution. Maybe in some small way we do deal with persecution at times, but distress or tribulation or nakedness or peril? Hmm. We, most of us in North America have what we need to clothe ourselves, and we're not dealing with somebody uh, in, like in warfare trying to attack us with a sword. But these people were. And he says, who of these are going to separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, yeah, we've put our life on the altar. We've offered ourselves up. And should something happen and these dangers come along and get us in the end, we've offered ourselves to that. But in all these things... We are more than conquerors to him that, through him that loved us. No matter even if the, all these things come upon us, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. For I am persuaded, I am certain, I am assured, I am fully convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present today, nor things to come in the future, nor highest height or lowest depth or anything else that God created shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you are thankful to be fully connected and permanently connected to the love of God, will you put your Bibles down, put your phones down, and lift your hands up to the Lord right now? Thank you, Jesus, for your love. 
Thank you, Jesus, that it is unending, that it never goes away. It never falls short, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you love me when I'm good in some senses and when I'm bad in some senses. God, you love me. You like me. And I'm thankful, Jesus, for your unending and faithful love in my life, Lord Jesus, that nothing can separate me from your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, yes, Lord. Oh, yes, Lord. We love you back, Jesus. I love you back, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I believe the Lord wants to speak to us uh, on, on, a, on a, a unique topic. So you may be seated. Now, I love the language that Paul uses here to talk about how nothing outside of us can separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor principalities and powers. Neither things present in the right now or things that might come down the road sometime in the future. Neither the highest height or the lowest depth. And I start to, as I say that, go feel like I'm on a seesaw. Just a little bit. I'm kind of tipping back and forth because it's these extremes. And he even says, nothing else that God has created, no other creature. Because really, I am the creature that can choose to separate from the love of God. I can. But no other creature, nothing else that's been created has the power to pluck me out of his hand, or separate me from the love of God. But I, I think I get caught, and I, I love the rhythmic feel of the either-or. And it is this kind of seesaw. Now, how many of you are old enough you actually remember having a seesaw on the playground? Because some of you don't. Especially the kids and the young people who may have left. It was taken off the playground because it was deemed unsafe. It is fun. Who said that? It is fun. It is fun, Sister Ann. I always enjoyed that. I think in the late 90s and early 2000s, they started taking it off the playgrounds. But for those who may not have seen one or been on one, somebody describe a seesaw for me. Sister Linda. Sister Linda Becker. Yeah, absolutely. A straight board. That's, I have that in my notes. This is a straight board or a plank of metal or something that you can suspend across a fulcrum, and it goes up and down on both ends. It's got a handle that you can hold on to, so you kind of straddle it, and you sit on each end, and you hope that the person across from you is about the same size. Sister, can, can we get that first seesaw picture up there? This is a seesaw. Now, this is a very gentle seesaw. Do you see this? They're wimps. They put tires underneath the ends. Because you all know, if, there, if that wasn't there and you, you had somebody either jump off the end, because how many of you were jumpers? Yeah, mm -hmm, I, I, I know you. Uh -huh. I knew there'd be some here. They jump off the end and you land real hard on the one side. Man, seesaws were fun. 
But that's exactly right, Sister Linda. It's this long plank that's suspended across the fulcrum, and you kind of teeter-totter, which is why some people, depending on where you're from in North America, you can call it a teeter-totter. Kind of go back and forth. And then you can go to the next picture, and this is two kids enjoying. Now, you can tell that he is much bigger than she is. So I'm assuming that this is big brother, this is little sister, and he had to kick to, to move himself up a little bit. He had to do a little work to give her the sensation of going down on the other end, right? Because that's kind of what a seesaw is all about. It's the joy of the ups and the downs and that feeling you get in your stomach when you're going up and that when you're going down, kind of like a roller coaster. It simulates that feeling, especially for real small kids. And so um, there are ways that people have misused it Jumping off the end, let the other kid crash to the ground. The bigger kid kind of kicks real hard, and the, the, kid, the, the small kid flies off the end a little bit. You all never did that, I know. But that is why I, I enjoyed it. I love that feeling in your belly like you're on a roller coaster. Same feeling that when I'm in the backseat of the car and Dad goes over the big hill. Oh, love that feeling. And so I, I, I think... Some of us might have gotten hooked on the ups and the downs or the heights and the depths. The real high place where you can see everything. You can see the whole playground, what everybody's doing. And then that inevitable, what goes up must come down. So today I want to talk about a seesaw mentality. A seesaw mentality where we are consistently focusing or talking about or feeling like we are part of the ups and the downs. The Bible uses um, words like mountains and valleys. Mountains and valleys. And a couple months ago, I started kind of being drawn to study mountains and valleys in scripture. And when, when we think of mountains and valleys, most of the time, unless you're a mountain climber or you're a hiker out in, the, in Colorado somewhere, you're, you're talking figuratively about your mountaintop experience and your valley experience. Well, in scripture, they were talking literally. There were actual, you know, rocky mountains where they were walking or where they were climbing or where they were encountering God. And then there were actual valleys that they were traversing and that they were having to get through. And so when we look at scripture to study mountains and valleys, we're thinking figuratively and they are experiencing it literally. So I'm, I'm admitting to you, I'm taking principles out of these literally lived experiences and saying, okay, this is like our walk with God. Does that make sense? Okay. So I will be talking about actual mountains. Um, today we're going to talk about mountains. This is a two-parter. Two You'll either be happy or disappointed about that. But it'll, it's a two-parter. Next week we'll finish with valleys and that in-between space uh, between the mountain and the valley. So the mountains and the valleys are actual tangible, visible places that people in Scripture experience. So... Uh, Sister Ruth, can you put up that picture of the mountain? Now, I know I caught you away from uh, something else that you were working on, but this is, this is me sitting on the top of Cadillac Mountain out south of Bar Harbor, Maine, 
This mountain is over 1,500 feet high. Now, I did not climb it. My car climbed it, but I did not climb it. They have conveniently made this round path that goes around the mountain, and you can drive up uh, the outside of the mountain, or you can drive up the side of the mountain in kind of a zigzag, and I made it to the top of the mountain. Thank you, Jeep. And, you know, I, I, I'm expressing kind of how you feel. You feel like you're, you know, on top of the mountain. And then, then Sister Ruth, also we, we have the valleys that start to show up. And this is a little more of a, ooh, there's a lot of obstacles. It's a little crowded. It's a little darker. Now, this is, I, this is a picture I took off of PowerPoint, so I was not in that one. But when I ask you, um, you know, I, I go, let's go back to that Cadillac Mountain. Um, picture. Now, when we have a spiritual mountaintop experience, what is that like? Real actual question that I would like a response to. It's amazing. It's joyous. You're feeling what? Free. You feel like you conquered something. I heard something else. Successful. Refreshed. Wow, this sounds good. Let's go, let's go on up the mountain, folks. I'd like to be there. That sounds great. Mountaintop experiences. I, I, I wrote down a couple things that you, you, you are thinking about good things. You're thinking about victory. You're living in victory. You're having a spiritual encounter. You have greater vision or your vision is clearer than it normally is because you're higher up. Um, you, you might be talking about miracles in these encounters with God that usually in our mind constitute a mountaintop experience. Now, let's go to the other side of the seesaw. What about a valley? What are you feeling in the valley? Low. <laughs> Heavy discouraged, blocked, blah or blocked, blocked and blah, exhausted, hopeless, lost, depressed, lonely, sad, somebody, loss of motivation, yes, you don't want to get up and do anything, yeah, you feel all these things. And what kind of things do we think about in the valley? I think about battles and struggles and difficulty and obstacles and darkness and fear and enemies. You don't know where that wolf is hiding and this little sheep doesn't want to encounter him. Fear. Shadows. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Oh, there's darkness in the valley. And these are our very simplified, disparate, dichotomous assessments of the mountain and the valley experiences in our lives. We all have that understanding. We all share that particular perspective on a mountain or a valley experience. And so buckle up because I'm going to start challenging some of that. Mountain experiences are not one-dimensional. Tonight we're going to talk about mountains. So let's go back 
Um, and, and let's look at me on top of the mountain, sis. I have had fewer, th- th- there really aren't very many days in my life that I can say I felt freer or more happy than, than this day. I was so excited. I was traveling with a friend. We had a great trip. And here we are just enjoying, well, she's not, she, she's in this picture because she's on this side of the camera. <laughs> but we're enjoying our time on top of the mountain. And I think this is similar to what some other people in scripture might have been experiencing in their mountaintop experiences. In Exodus 19, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you lots of passages that you can read later. Um, Make sure that I'm telling you the truth, which I do encourage whenever anybody's preaching. Take notes. Look later. Make sure they're telling you the truth. Exodus 19, Moses goes up into Mount Sinai. Now, this is a powerful mountaintop experience. Forty days with the Lord by himself, caught up into a glory cloud. There are lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and the audible voice of God and the hand of God writing on tablets. And if he was Pentecostal, he's probably up there doing a little shuffle. Oh, God, this is awesome. That's powerful. Better yet, oh, this will preach. He's excited. Completely unaware that over the course of 40 days, his face and his skin has started to glow because of the exposure to the concentrated, magnified presence of the Lord. It's a mountaintop experience. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Moses was in a mountaintop experience. And then we look over to 1 Kings 18. Elijah has a plan to rid Israel of the prophets of Baal. And he's headed up to Mount Carmel to prove God. And he's challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel of sacrifices where the burnt offering can only be burnt by fire from heaven. Now that's bold. That's that's brazen. And he's operating in such a way that he's inviting God to not just, you know, burn up a sacrifice, but he has poured water all over the sacrifice and the altar, and it's running off into ditches that he had them dig. Now, the prophets of Baal have done all they could do, and they couldn't call fire down. He, on the other hand, is making it harder for God. And in 52 words in English, I don't know how many words in Hebrew, but 52 words in the King James Bible, he prays a simple prayer saying, hey, God, pay attention here. Please do this to prove yourself to your people. And fire falls to such a degree that not only the sacrifice, not only the water, but the very rocks that they were laid on were devoured. And the Bible says the people fell forward to bow themselves before the Lord. And you know Elijah's like, yes, revival! It's here! It's here. It's a certain victory. And I can see, I mean, you read the passage, Elijah's zealous excitement. He's trembling. He's so happy. The people helped him kill the prophets of Baal. Read it. He didn't do it by himself. They helped him. This is revival in the kingdom of Israel. And he is so excited Totally foreseeing a total victory, complete and total victory. And he believed 
that it was certain. He's having a mountaintop experience, right? Absolutely. And we see both of them show up later in Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. All tells parts of the same story where Elijah and Moses show up together. Because Jesus has transfigured himself on top of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's glowing and he's glorious. And the disciples who had been quite exhausted, I mean, Luke's the only one that gives us this insight, but they, he said they were heavy with sleep. They, they were sleeping and they wake up and Jesus is above the ground talking to two Men who really aren't in physical bodies the way that we would understand it. It's shocking. It's a mountaintop experience. They see Jesus talking to and hearing from Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is in the center, shiny and glowing and supernatural encounter. That's a mountaintop experience. You know they were, whoo. Man, nobody's lived through anything like this. this. Not even Moses got to experience this the first time around. This is huge. Huge. It's mind-blowing stuff. And it doesn't get any more mountaintop experience than these three situations. Now, there are many more that we could point to and examine. But I'm looking at this going... There's amazing demonstration of the power and presence of God in these experiences. And so when we say that mountaintop experiences have an amazing encounter with God tied up in them, we're, we're not wrong. It's a correct assumption. It's a correct perspective. And if all of these guys, like I said, had been Pentecostal, they would have shouted the victory. They would have been running the aisles on top of the mountain, which can get dangerous. And they had a right to praise God for what they had seen, for what they had encountered. But remember that mountaintops are not one-dimensional experiences. It's not all good and it's not all bad. Oh, when I said it's not all good, some of you were like, but wait. Here's the thing. Those experiences are, are powerful, and they are good. good for, I mean, Peter said it. It's good for us to have been here, Lord. Right? It's good. But that's not the end of the story, because Moses' experience gives us some caution. Moses' experience of being in a high and mighty place in the Lord teaches us that High and mighty places in God cannot make us feel like we can be high and mighty. I'll say that in a different way. When we are in a high and mighty place with God, our flesh is sometimes predisposed to think that we have ascended and we are high and mighty. I know that because when he came down from this amazing encounter. And I don't know anybody else in Scripture who spent 40 days consumed in the glory cloud of God on top of a mountain with massive physical demonstrations impacting the earth around him. Powerful encounter. I, don't, I, I have heard of some people 
being told that they, the light of Jesus shines from them, but I've never heard of anybody having to put a veil over his face because his skin is literally shiny. Moses had that. And after being in that presence for 40 days, God says, hey, Israel is messing up. They've built uh, an idol to worship. You need to get down there and set things right. And so Moses, having been surrounded by both the power and the love and the truth of God for 40 days, starts to descend the mountain. Well, first he gave himself to intercession because the Lord was going <laughs> to zap the people. <laughs> like, mm, I'm done. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. God says, no, 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 no. All these other people will start talking bad about you. You don't want that to happen. So why don't we just save these people? We'll, we'll, we'll work with what we got. He intercedes. And then he descends and sees the gravity of their sinfulness and exactly what kind of depravity they had fallen into in such a short season. The same season he was spending with God in a high place, they were spending in the descent to sin. And he can't, he doesn't contain himself. I won't say he can't. He doesn't contain himself. He allows his anger to boil over. And he takes those tablets that God himself had written on, those stone tablets that had the law on them, and he hurls them to the ground and they shatter and they break. That was not the plan of God. But he did it. Because unfortunately... Our flesh, when we experience a high and mighty experience in God, is sometimes predisposed to think that we are high and mighty. You know how, you know how I see this today? And I've seen it a lot. I, I, I've had the privilege to be around um, a lot of young people as they are on missions trips. And it's so encouraging for them, and they get into the spiritual mindedness and the focus for that entire week or 10 days or month or however long they're on aim or whatever is all about God and the work of God and the kingdom of God. And it consumes who they are, and it's a beautiful thing to be a part of and a beautiful thing to watch. And it's really this mountaintop experience that isn't going to last forever because at some point they're going to go back home and come down the mountain to folks who are just being good Christian people on level ground. And they get frustrated. I've been with God for the last month. I've been hearing straight from him. I've been, I've been spending time in his presence. I've seen powerful demonstrations. What's wrong with you people? How can you dare to care about your normal, everyday, ordinary jobs? It's, it's this idea that it being with God, should we have to be on guard that it does not inflate our own sense of ego and make us think that we are somehow as high and mighty as God took us in that mountaintop experience. Amen. Mountaintop experiences are not one-dimensional. There are multiple facets to how we experience a mountain. And the good stuff is good, but it's not all there is. Take Elijah's situation. Great, powerful victory. Amazing advancement 
And he had been fighting this literal uphill battle against the prophets of Baal for years. Israel had been infested by pagan worship. And he was fighting and he was warring in the spirit, I'm sure. And warring in the flesh to try to take back Israel for the truth and for the one true God. And so he's so impassioned now that this great victory has happened. People's hearts have been turned away from Baal and turned toward the one true God. This is what he's been preaching. This is what he's been wanting. And he sees it before his very eyes on top of the mountain in 1 Kings 18.39. They fall down on their face because they realize Baal is nothing and God is everything. And Elijah was immediately like, Praise God, we're in revival. He was so excited and pumped up with adrenaline. The Spirit of God came on him, and when he tore down the mountain, he outran the chariots of, Abraham, of Ahab. He was flying down the mountain by the power of God and the adrenaline that was in him. He was so excited because he was certain that this was just the beginning of Everything God was going to do to wipe out the influence of this pernicious woman Jezebel in Israel. That is not what happened. That is not what happened. What happened instead is Jezebel said, well, if he thinks he can get away with that, I'm going to take his life just like he took the lives of my prophets. And we see Elisha turn around and run. He's running for his life. He flees for his life to another mountain. And this mountain experience will be very different than the last one. When he gets to Mount Horeb, it's not victory that he's feeling. It's not even faith that he's feeling. At this point, he's already asked God, why don't you just take my life? Surely I'm not even doing any good here. Hopelessness. And he's sitting in the cave in Mount Horeb, and God passes by him with powerful demonstration. But God doesn't show up in the fire, and he doesn't show up in the strong wind, and he doesn't show up in the earthquake, and all these things that would make a mountaintop experience awesome. Instead, he shows up in this still small voice, which is also part of a mountaintop experience. The still, small voice. That's also, Sister Dory, a mountaintop. That's not what we think about. How can it be that as part of a mountaintop experience, he's experiencing the things that we said happen in the valley? Loneliness. He said, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who's still worshiping you in truth. In all of Israel, it's just me. He's lonely. He's hopeless. He's depressed. He's angry. You go read it. He's feeling all the feels of the valley while he's sitting in a cave in the mountain. And when that still small voice comes, he says, look, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to give you some instruction. And you should know that you're not alone. I've got 7,000 who've never bowed their knee to Baal. So the mountaintop 
can be a place of discouragement. But it's also a place of instruction and reassurance when that still small voice shows up. Is this helping somebody? I feel like when we get on that seesaw, we start to think maybe there's something wrong with us because I'm, I, I, I was on the mountain a minute ago and now I'm in the valley, but are you or are your feelings just not reflecting what you think a mountaintop experience looks like? This is where the seesaw gets involved when our feelings rule the day, right? Yesterday I was, Sunday, I was all up here. And then I went to work on Monday and I got bad news and, man, I'm in the valley. Well, are you? Or is God teaching you something while you're on the mountain? The reaction of Elisha and I think I'm saying Elisha. I think it's Elijah. <laughs> it's Elijah on Mount Carmel. Helps us understand that this mountaintop experience doesn't always fix systemic problems. A single mountaintop experience does not fix systemic problems. He expected it to fix Jezebel and to uproot all the little uh, tangles of her influence web that were around Israel at the time. But what had to happen was a little bit later, somebody had to kill Jezebel. Yeah, the mountaintop experience was great, but that wasn't going to fix this. And this, this happens to us when we are in a high place and we have a great experience with God and then we go home and the same old fight is there and the same old battles there and the same old patterns and habits are there and the same old temptations are there. But God, I was on the mountain with you. I had a real encounter with you. How come I'm still struggling with this? Because my encounter with God is great and it's strengthening and it's part of the process, but it's just a part of the process. I still got to come home and do some work to uproot the influence of things that have no right to be in my life. His experience at Mount Carmel teaches us that the mountaintop experience does not immediately fix systemic problems. My job's still going to be my job. School is still going to be school. Whatever you struggle with that's between you and Jesus is still going to be something that tries to get you, tries to tempt you, even after an incredible mountaintop experience. And so we just have to remind ourselves, wait a second, I still got to kill Jezebel. <laughs> Please understand I'm not talking about the person, but I've still got to get that spirit out of my life. Wherever it's influencing, I still have to do the work to get that out of my system. Is this making sense tonight? The, the third example I gave was Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And what I see here is that Peter's response teaches us that these very real and powerful experiences of revelation and illumination have to be brought back to the word of God and processed through 
the doctrine of truth. You know why? Peter had a very certain understanding of who Jesus was. One chapter prior in Matthew 16, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know who you are. I understand your deity. I understand. And, and he had this grounded understanding. And so six days later, he's up the mountain with Jesus, and he says, Oh, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. Whoa. You want to talk about Seesaw? He's gone from having a very clear understanding to now just being right on the edge of idolatry. To elevate Moses and Elijah to the same level as this one that he just said, you are the Christ. A mountaintop experience with very real revelation and illumination can open us up to a sneak attack of false doctrine. Let me say that one more time. An experience of real revelation, real illumination, real spiritual encounter can open us up to a sneak attack of false doctrine. You want to know where I see this? I am, I am 100% not against going out into community church events. You can have a very real encounter with God in a non-apostolic forum. You could feel the presence of God at a Christian concert. You can experience an, a work from God. You can see miracles happen in a non-apostolic environment. But be cautious because that very real encounter with God can inadvertently confirm a false doctrine in our spirit. Does that make sense? Peter had it all right six days before he goes up the mountain. Then he goes up and has this big revelation, and now he's not quite sure. God's immediate response was, look, this one in the middle, that's my son. Hear him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to this guy. He's the one with the word. He's the one with the truth. He is the truth. Okay, so when you have an experience and all of a sudden something, mm, you hear something, that doesn't quite sit right. Three tabernacles, I'm not sure that that's quite, that that's quite right. I'm going to take it back to the word. I'm going to say, what, what did Peter say last chapter? What did my pastor teach me? What's the truth of the Bible? Truth. I want to know the truth, and so I'm going to filter anything I hear anywhere else, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's out at a, a, a concert or a Christian event in the community where I don't know the doctrine of the person that's holding that microphone. I'm going to bring it all back here and run it through the truth that I know. This is the word. Okay? If that makes sense. It's important that we understand who Jesus is and that we hear him. Amen. Now, again, I'm not against anybody going out and having great godly experiences in other environments. Not at all. But we need to understand, even if I hit a mountaintop in that place, 
the truth matters more than my experience. And other mountaintops can be examined. Those are just three that I wanted to talk about tonight. I, I look at, you know, Noah was a man of great faith, and his ascent to the mountain was a powerful one. But it was fueled by torrential rain and the flooding of the deep opening up. Who wants to take that ride up a mountain? And then he's stuck on the mountain. That's, you know, people who want to live on a mountaintop experience, what if you were in an ark with hundreds of animals and your seven favorite and least favorite people? I'm not sure about that mountaintop experience. Genesis 22, Abraham's mountaintop experience he is walking up the mountain knowing that God has called him to sacrifice his son. That happened on the way up a mountain. And he didn't know that on the top of that mountain, a substitutionary sacrifice was waiting. He went in certainty of what he had to do. But that's not the kind of mountaintop experience I want to pray for. That's hard. That's gut-wrenching. That's every step is painful because I know I'm getting closer and closer to this thing that I just don't know. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I want to. And he finds out at the top of the mountain that God never planned for him to kill Isaac that the plan of God was always to make a substitutionary sacrifice. And whew, that trip down the mountain had to be a lot different. Glad to get back to the valley on that one. And then in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer charged up a mountain knowing they were headed into enemy territory. They even called up there and said, hey, can we, call, can we come on up? And that was, the, they, they were fleecing the Lord. And they said, if, if they say yes, we're going to go up. And you know the armor bearer is like, please say no, please say no, please say no. But they said, yeah, come on up. And they did. And they won a great victory on the side of a mountain that day by charging into a known battle. Outnumbered outsorted, not outgunned, but outsorted. They didn't even have a sword. Jonathan had one. They didn't have two to share. That's a mountaintop experience, running into the battle headlong. Now, if I asked you earlier, does a mountain have a battle on it? Hmm. Most of the time we'd say, no, the battle's in the valley. But victory exists. For victory to exist on the mountain... There has to be a battle on the mountain. Otherwise, you'd only have victory in the valley. The mountain is not a one-dimensional experience. It is not all good, and it is not all bad. And we have to be real careful when we try to assess, okay, Am I on the mountain or am I in the valley? Most of the time in my experience, I don't know until I'm on the other side. Until I can turn around and look back and see. Clearly I'm on the mountain now. Clearly 
I have more vision and I can see more of what's going on. And yeah, I do have a lot of those pleasant, happy feelings. Most of the time on the mountain. Sometimes, Sister Kayla, being on the mountaintop looks like nine months of incubating a child and having morning sickness, pains in your body, and swelling in your ankles, and all those things that happen to a mama because that's what a mountaintop experience looks like for a mom. A mom who's tried to have kids and miraculously God healed her body and enabled her to have a child. This is a painful mountaintop experience. I know you love to be called out in the middle of everyone. So I, I want to come back to this next week, and we're going to continue to talk a little bit about what we can learn from valley experiences and what we can learn about the parts in between the mountain. You know, seesaws don't just go up and down. They also sit level. They also are kind of like this and like that and like that and like that and like that. In fact, most of the time that you're on a seesaw, you're not up and you're not down. You're in the middle. So we're going to talk about valleys and living in the middle. Maybe even getting stuck somewhere in the middle. And what that really looks like in scripture. So in the meantime, between now and next week, I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to find probably the one playground in all of this area that has a seesaw. I don't even know if there is one. But if you find one, go try it out. Get a friend who really is about your size. <laughs> and go try a seesaw. And remember what it feels like to go up, to go down, to feel the change in your body as all of these things happen because this rhythmic pattern of ups and downs isn't going anywhere. And the full range of experience is what God intended for the Christian life. It's life, but it's more abundant. Amen. And also in the meantime, go back to Romans 8, 35 and 39. It doesn't matter if you're up, and it doesn't matter if you're down, and it doesn't matter if you're in between because... I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Brother Jeff, would you come and close us out tonight? Praise God.